and welcome back to another special edition of the McGregor Podcast. Recently on a Wednesday night as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a hot topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading the topic gender identity. As you can imagine, it was a very, very hot topic. The title of Pastor Russell's teaching that night was Identity Crisis. And on this episode, part three, we're going to be answering some of your questions relating to the very cultural issue of gender identity. So welcome to the podcast, Pastor Russell. Thank you. It's good to be here, Brother Mark. And we did. We had we got a pretty good response on on the Q and A uh, when we asked for folks to to fill out questions, and and the majority of them were all centered around the the whole issue of gender identity. You could see, I guess, anytime somebody gets a chance to ask a question, they might kind of drift over into another area that they have a curiosity that's not wasn't directly related to our topic. But the questions we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to or uh, today, we're going to focus specifically on those that relate to uh, gender identity. And a lot of them that were very similar, we're going to combine those together. Okay, okay. But before we get to the question, in case, again, anybody thinks that what we're talking about here with the transgender movement or transgender activists or revolutionaries, whatever you want to call that particular group, that they have not captured the mainstream uh, cultural norms in our, in our society today, uh, I wanted to play uh, at least one clip from something that just came out this past week uh, from Boston Children's Hospital. Now, that's probably everybody has heard of that. Uh, very prestigious, been around for over 100 years, I think, or yeah, close to 100. Is, this is not fringy. No, no. And they have produced a whole series of videos dealing with transgenderism. And what is the one that the, the the videos that have been the hardest to to kind of comprehend that these are being coming out from from Boston Children's Hospital are the ones that are dealing with with adolescents and children. Okay. Uh, so let's play this, and then I want to get I'm going to get your your take on this uh, this first uh, audio clip. So most of the patients that we have in the GEMS clinic actually know their gender, usually around the age of puberty, but a good portion of children do know as early as seemingly from the womb, and they will usually express their gender identity as very young children, some as soon as they can talk. They might say phrases such as, I'm a girl, or I'm a boy, or I'm going to be a woman, or I'm going to be a mom. Kids know very, very early. So in the GEMS clinic, we see a variety of young children all the way down to ages two and three, and usually up to the ages of nine. When when they come into the clinic, they'll see one of our psychologists and we'll be talking to them about their gender, we'll be talking to their family about how to best support that child and how to make sure that that child has the space and support to explore their gender and uh, do well throughout their development. And we'll be answering any parent questions, a lot of parents do have questions and so we answer those questions. The biggest piece of advice I give parents uh, who are coming through the gender clinic at Boston Children's Hospital is to just be supportive. Um, sometimes you might not understand Understand. Sometimes you feel like you don't know the terms or you don't kind of get exactly what the child means when they say that they might be this gender. But the biggest thing you can do is just love your child and support them and just allow them to express themselves. That's the biggest protector as well against negative mental health effects such as depression, suicidality, anxiety that we worry about for our gender diverse kids and young adults. So that support from a parent is one of the best protective factors and one of the best things they can do. So that's a clinic that's within the Boston Children's Hospital dealing with adolescents and children and transgenderism. So thoughts yeah. on that? She almost sounds 
bothered that many children seem to know what gender they are from practically the womb. She mm -hmm. states that like that's an astonishing surprise. She, uh, she speaks of the psychologists and... Uh, unfortunately, in our in our culture, the the psychologist has come to sort of be the the, the ultimate high priest figure. Mm. Um, they're where you go if you want to get it right, and they're grounded in precisely nothing other than their own conversations with themselves in a massive circle. And uh, the uh, the dire threats of depression and suicidalism and all of those things that are going to happen if you don't bow at the altar of the high priestly psychologists, if, you're, if your little boy wants to uh, play with his sister's doll for a moment, quick, bring in the psychologist. You mm -hmm. probably have a girl on your hands. Uh, it, it, it's, all, it's all just absurd. Yeah. It's completely absurd on the face of it. If in, in a sane world, what we just heard would be a comedy sketch, yeah. not a serious appeal for anything that purports to be um, medically or even humanly helpful. Yeah, and the and the challenge to parents to be supportive uh, yeah. and, and loving and think yeah you know that's I, the most least supportive and loving thing you could you yeah. could do is yeah if you're if you're bring child, them on that journey if your child wants to eat nothing nothing but peanut M Ms twenty four seven and that's the entire the entire desire of your little child's heart then of course the most important thing you can do is be supportive of your child's desire to eat nothing but peanut M&Ms far be it from you know, if you tell your child they have to occasionally approach a vegetable or maybe you know eat some protein along and along well you know you could make them depressed and suicidal mm -hmm. and i and for those of you who are listening who think i'm making light um, I admit that I'm using hyperbolic language. I'll readily concede that, but I am not making light, except to point out the sheer absurdity mm -hmm. of a position that says you should you should just embrace and cultivate your fallen child's sinful impulses. Mm -hmm. That's just nuts. Yeah. And one other thing before we dive into the questions that I have, again, noticed... Every part of the LGBTQ plus movement that has preceded the the, the G and the Q, uh, it's been more like decades in transitioning. Yeah, we get to the G, and all of a sudden there is this velocity, this this anger that comes with this. And you've touched on a little bit about not are we not only are we to approve, but we if we're not supporting and condoning, right? Uh, then 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 we now are our hate speech. We are even now I'm hearing, you know, even the phrase uh, that you're you're like a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And so that's you mentioned the persecution earlier. That's that's what we're going to be called. Get ready for it. Right. When right. we take a stand and say this is crazy. And the Romans one progression that I laid out uh, on the Wednesday night that I taught taught this in the fellowship hall that was you know broken into part one and two of this podcast, the uh, that Romans one progression it the the decay and degradation of society proceeds along uh, sexual and gender lines. It's it's such a core. Those issues are sort of the canary in the coal mine issues to to track the disintegration of an orderly culture. Mm -hmm. um, and, once and that's gone. Once that's gone. And remember that, that Paul is writing that letter into the heart of the Roman Empire in the heart of the first century. This was not written to 22nd century North America. 
the, the pattern is not a new one. Right. And the consequences are not new. And here we are. Here we are. Well, here we are with some questions too. And, and the first question I want to ask, there were probably, you know, half a dozen that were very similar along the same line. So I'm going to ask, just pick out one of these that I think encapsulates it pretty good. But they asked the question, how do we speak the truth to our friends and family? How do we speak that truth in love to our friends and family? And how do we do this without sounding or being critical or making them feel as if they are less? Okay. Really have to address those three separate questions as three, and I'm not suggesting, Brother Mark, that you should have separated them, but but there are three different things mm-hmm. going on there. How, shall, how should I speak? Mm-hmm. How can I keep from sounding? How can I keep them from feeling? Right. All right, let me work backward. How can I keep them from feeling? Finish that sentence any way you want, and the answer is that's impossible. Mm -hmm. You are not accountable for the emotional state of the person to whom you are speaking truth. And that's very liberating. You cannot keep them from feeling. In 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 the most healthy of outcomes, they they might recognize what they are feeling as conviction. And, and, and respond well. And, you, and, and conviction, trust me, is uncomfortable. And if you're listening to this and you're a believer, you just said amen because you know it. And people who have spoken into my life on subjects where it benefited me to feel convicted um, didn't mind that I felt that way. So don't, don't bog down too much in responsibility for them feeling a, a certain way. All right. How can you how can you keep them from from hearing you sound? I've forgotten the exact wording, but but harsh or critical. Critical, you can't because uh, hopefully in more the the more the way the academics use it and less the way it would be casually used. You are you are being critical. You are offering critique, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the point. So you can't. Um, it's kind of like an, a, 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 a I don't know a heart surgeon saying how can I get to the heart without having to mess with the sternum. You're going to have to mess with the sternum if you're going to do open heart surgery. And the person is going to feel that you are making critique type observations. Right. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're not doing anything. And then, and then the first question, which was really the heart of the question, how should I speak? Um, I, am, I am convinced that one of the uh, sort of easiest and most biblically accessible uh, rubrics for how should I speak is to remember the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. You should speak in a way that reflects your own love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That last one matters a lot because if in the conversation you're going to lose it, you're not ready for the conversation. All right. If you can't convey your concern, your critique, your appeal in ways that are, hey, not necessarily in what they receive, but absolutely in what you transmit, marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Um, gentleness is in there, but avoidance of difficult things is not counter to the fruit of the Spirit. It's where they matter most, addressing difficult things. Mm-hmm. If you and I are discussing the, the, the weather last Tuesday, uh, I don't need to, to depend upon the presence of the Holy Spirit to help me keep myself in check. But if you and I are discussing something as sensitive as, as these matters, 
then I, I must rely on the presence of God, the Spirit in me to keep, to keep the conversation, my part of it, as much as I can on the rails. And obviously this adds a whole <coughs> layer of complications when it is a family member, uh, somebody that maybe either even you live with or somebody that you see fairly frequently at gatherings. Uh, any, any suggestions on, on, on how to handle those circumstances? You know, even there, there are sort of degrees. So um, within that, you know, one illustration, uh, and as I was thinking through this question and stuff, I, I, the, 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 mental, the mental picture and the analogy of a, of a loved one who is an arsonist occurred to me. But honestly, that's a bit over the top. So let me rein it into something that might be a bit more realistic and something for which many of our listeners may already have a framework. If you have a, a relative who is a chain smoker, and they just are. It's who they are. It's how they identify. They're just a chain smoker. You probably don't have any problem saying, not at my house. Mm -hmm. You probably don't have any problem saying, I will not have chain smoking in my living room. I'm just not going to deal with that. Now, an interesting question is, why would I be okay telling a chain smoker they can't be a chain smoker at my house? And then I'm not okay telling a person who is expressing their gender in ways differently than the gender God gave them. Why would I have any problem telling them that also is not okay at my house? So in the, in the sphere of stewardship where I have control, I ought not be shy about saying that particular brand of sinful self-expression and make no mistake, you've got to be resolved that it is sinful self-expression. And again, if you can do it with somebody's uh, moral burrows, you can do it with somebody's gender. It's exactly the same principle, not, not in the sphere that I control. If you are in authority in that sphere. Right. And if you say, well, if I did that, they would, they would rebel. Uh, rebelling is a very old problem, and you're not causing it. All right. Um, the... the as the sphere widens out and it's someone that you have to coexist with just as a matter of the routine unfolding course, I don't want to sound too cliche, but our, our grandparents said it in terms of, of hate the sin, love the sinner. And that's hard, but there's a lot of wisdom in that. When you, 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 can't, you can't let the situation become so stable that the individual is not aware that their sin is problematic. You are an ambassador of Christ. You bear the message of the king. So the, the reality of, of, of the sin that is in their situation doesn't need to recede into complete and total background. Neither, by the way, does the gospel. Right. The, the means whereby they can be uh, born again and transformed away from any sin, including this one, uh, or these ones. Uh, but we are, we are gentle and we are loving and we are faithful. The big lie, Brother Mark, is that it's loving not to say anything. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and again, we, we know that's not true. If it's I've a lot a, easier, though. Yeah, if I've got a relative <laughs> who's sound asleep in a house that's burning down, it is not loving of me to leave their nap undisturbed uh, while the house burns down around them. That's not love. That's apathy or um, some sort of 
um, psycho-emotional self-preservation. Um, and, if, and if someone would say, well, if I, if I stay on point um, of trying, trying to confront this sin in the life of someone that I care about, uh, I, I, could, I could lose them. Um, and that's, that's brutal reality, but you know what? You could. Um, and, and I think Jesus even said, in fact, I know he did. Jesus said some things about the possible impact of the gospel, even in our immediate families, that faithfulness to him could conceivably cost us relationships we would hold dear. Yeah. And it can. Yeah. So just to make clear uh, for this person that asked this question, you're not saying that they disassociate from this friend or family member. They're saying when they are in their home, that they have asked them, this is not something that you'll talk about, share about. Uh, we're not; it's not up for debate. Uh, Correct. Kind of like the smoker, you, you can come in my house, but you're not going to smoke. Right. Uh, what they do outside of that is that you have no control over that, no stewardship over that, and the goal is also while they are there to be able to speak truth into their into their lives in a way that is done through the through the fruit of the spirit. And, and anticipate they may cut you off. Mm. Um, you know, c- conviction, conviction to which I am not going to respond healthily. I can, I can make the discomfort of conviction go away two ways. I can either uh, respond to it in a healthy way and repent, or I can turn the sound off. And, and their way of turning the sound off might be to cut you out of their lives. Yeah. And you've got to be prepared to bear up under that. Yeah. All right, I think we spent 10 minutes on the first question. Uh Uh-oh, I do that. (laughs) All right, next question. If hair color change is okay, and you specifically talked about, uh, I think you asked everybody in the room to raise their hand now. No, I I almost (laughs) did, because I wanted the best one. If you've ever uh, colored your hair. Uh, if, if, If hair color change is okay, what about tattoos and breast implants? First, I think the question is a reasonable one. And any, any sort of permanent change I make in myself, the first, the first and I think I made this point uh, in, the, in the live teaching, if, you're, if you are intending to distort gender, uh, gender being very close to the core of who God made you, we, that, 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 that's a problem. But if you, um, you know, let's, let's, in a continuum, for example, if you're a, a mastectomy patient, uh, praise, praise God, rather than a, a woman having to be self-conscious after, suppose, a, a radical mastectomy, praise God, things can be reconstructed in a healthy way. If you're considering a cosmetic reconstruction or if you're considering a tattoo, I think that there are questions to be asked about uh, the, the permanence of that and the intentionality of that, the economics of that, the motives behind that. Why you're wanting to do Yeah, that. There, are, there are all kinds of very wise questions that can be asked. I do want to throw in uh, for tattoos, if you, uh, if you hold that there's an absolute biblical prohibition, then you're, you're drawing that prohibition from Leviticus 19.28, because that's the closest you're going to come to one. Before you, before you go too far with waving about a verse from Leviticus 19 as a present-day prohibition, I invite you to consider other prohibitions from Leviticus 19 that you may or may not accept. Yeah. And then I get to ask you why you chose this one. And it might be that you chose this one because tattoos bug you. Yeah. Unless you have an equal problem with multiple types of seed planted in the same field and uh, wearing garments made from one kind, more than one kind of fabric. 
which are also forbidden in Leviticus yep. 19. Yep. So be careful employing Leviticus 19 as an absolute biblical prohibition of tattoos, but also be careful just, I'm going to go get a tattoo next Tuesday because those suckers are forever and they hurt and they're expensive. And why would you want to do that is a fair question. And you rattled off several other questions. I think that's great wisdom to go through those those questions, but also maybe to find a couple of other, you know, People you trust, believers that you trust and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And, sure. And have some, some feedback. Yeah, if nobody in your life but you thinks something makes sense, I bet it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, another question. Can you recommend books for further reading on the topic of identity crisis from a biblical worldview? You know, there's there's one. And we, oh, Pastor Mark, we went through it as a, as a, as a staff. Um it's, it is an approachable, if you're a reader, you can read this, mm. though it won't be, this is not Dr. Seuss. This is not just a, no. a light read. The author is a guy named Carl Truman, and the book is Strange New World. Uh, it, there is a older, slightly more expanded treatment called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, also by Truman, which is a bit almost academic in right. terms of its reading level. You really have to be a reader to read the older, larger Truman work. But Strange New World was kind of written to be read by real people. And it is precisely this, this, this material. I could not have approached this material the way I did. I had other resources other than Truman, but Truman was the spine. Truman, Truman is a central resource. And if you care enough about this topic to want to read further, Strange New World by Truman. And there's some bibliography in that book where he cites other sources yep. that will branch you into plenty of reading you can do. And you'll walk away with a much better understanding of historically how Absolutely. we got to where we are today. Which, which is such a, such a uh, for those of us who are our age, it sort of has a zero to 60 feel to it uh, in the wrong direction. How do we go this far this fast? Uh, Truman is very clear about, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all that fast. It just lived below the surface. Mm -hmm. And then when it popped up, it popped up with a bullet. Yeah. I'll recommend one other thing. It's not a book. Maybe there's somebody that's not a reader, uh, but a podcast I listen to pretty much every day is Al Mohler's um, Daily Briefing. Do you think he sleeps, <laughs> Mohler? I don't, I don't know. It, it gets released like at 6 a.m., and, and he's uh, already been thinking for hours before he, it, I, I agree with Brother Mark, it's an incredible, incredible podcast. And it's current. It's not like he's recording oh, no. them way, way in advance because it often will speak to something that happened the day before. The day before, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I don't I, know how he does it. but I, uh, Dr. Moeller, should you ever hear this, and you won't, but if you did, I'm not accusing you of being a robot, but I think you are one. <laughs> and many of the topics uh, are, are specifically dealing with what we're talking about here. Not yes. all of them, obviously. He, he covers the gamut, and he helps, he helps the listener uh, to think biblically yes, about these world events and just does a great job with those. Uh, let's do at least one more here and we will run, be running out of time. Uh, do we as a church have legal risk regarding this matter? And do we have adequate policies in place to provide a defense? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course we have, we have legal risk. Uh, we have legal risk when every Sunday of uh, hundreds are, are on, in, in season more than, more than, well, actually thousands of people walk on our sidewalks and use our stairways and go into our bathrooms and, and uh, you know, everything from slip and falls to some incident that can occur on any given Sunday. So we constantly manage legal risk. And I don't, I'm, again, I'm not making light of the question. That's the only possible answer to the question. 
In terms of policies, we, we do have prudent policies in place on both the McGregor side of sort of the org chart as well as the Southwest Florida Christian Academy side of the org chart. And we're very, very clear about what what sort of things we recognize as families and how we will treat gender issues in little children. And our, our approaches are biblical. Are those defenses adequate? You know, adequate is a funny word, and you and you and you never know whether your defenses are adequate until you've had an attack and you've survived it. Then you can say, "Well, hmm, it appears our defenses were adequate this time." Yeah, yeah, they're 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 thoughtful and they're prudent, but I would, I would, I would shy away from labeling them adequate. Uh, I pray that they would be. Yeah, and I guess that's a little bit of the the part that is the unknown because our. Our culture is changing so rapidly, right? And what and we're weird, yeah, and becoming more and more weird, yeah. Uh, where you know, if, to be to go from being accused of, like I mentioned earlier, hate speech to now, you know, you're you're committing domestic terrorism because you are causing harm, potential harm to somebody because you're saying what you're saying. Because you say a little boy is a, a little, little boy. boy, right? Right, and you know. Hopefully, at some point, our culture will go, wait a minute, this is crazy, this is insane, but I, we can't count on that anymore. No, no. And, and so I think you're right. You know, we do what we can. Yeah. We do our best as far as trying to be prudent and, uh, and having policies in place. And it's super important to remember for the, for the, both for the individual believer and for the church, we are our, the Great Commission is not a directive to fix the culture. No. Salt will be salt because it's salt. Light will be light because it's light. But our, our um, commission is to call people out of the, of the culture, not to repair the culture. Right. And we have to be, now we will have an effect on the culture as we live for Jesus. Uh, and again, it'll be a salt and light effect, but it's not uh, central to our assignment to, well, what are we going to do about this and how are we going to fix it? Uh, the king will fix it. Uh, our job is to communicate the gospel with clarity and passion in every setting that we can uh, as, we, as we seek to play our role in rescuing people. Yeah. You said this earlier, and I think it's, it's, it bears repeating that just, just go ahead and prepare for that persecution. Go oh, ahead and yeah. prepare for the fact that, that we're not going to be liked. Uh, because if you're thinking... Oh, we've got the, you know, it's a church and everybody's going to love us and we're doing the right thing. And we're doing good things. That's, that's not going to be the culture we live in moving forward. No. And, and, uh, just a, a surface understanding of Christian history, the history of the last 2000 years and how the people of Christ have navigated the last 2000 years makes that unsurprising. If your entire view of history is the history of North America since the 1950s, you might be appalled and surprised hmm as the culture sort of turns on us. But if your history involves understanding the interactions between the people of Jesus Christ and the culture around them going back to the first century, at this point, your response is, well, here we are again. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. One last question. How do you biblically address the rare chromosomal occurrences of Turner syndrome or Kleinfelter syndrome? And maybe explain what those are. Yeah, first. Turner, Turner and Kleinfelter are 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 both um, chromosomal level, genetic level difficulties. Turner is when a little girl has a a defect in one of the X chromosomes, and as she, uh, some things could be evident even at birth, 
Um, but as she hits as she hits adolescence and puberty, there can be some uh, failure of the gender to express itself as it as it would in a person that doesn't have Turner syndrome. Uh, but the the Turner syndrome patient is a little girl. Turner does not occur in people that don't have XX chromosomes. Um, it's a tragic thing, and one must never make light of it. And it can create real struggles as the little girl. Uh, experiences the stages of, of little girl to womanhood. Mm. Uh, however, there are, there are Turner syndrome patients who've gone on to be moms, biological moms and things like that. So the, 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 but uh, with love, with gentleness, and with praise to God for the best of what medical science can achieve, the, the Turner syndrome patient is, is a little girl that uh, may need some special medical attention down the years of her, of her life. Kleinfelter only occurs in males, and it is the presence of an extra X chromosome. So instead of being sort of XY, they are sort of XXY, yeah. And, and similarly to Turner, um, first, it only occurs in boys. So the, this is not you know, sort of a, a medical hermaphroditism, which is another extraordinarily rare but very real problem. This is a little boy that's going to have some problems again as his as he gets to puberty and adolescence, and and his maleness may not express itself right. as it would in a in a, a little boy without Kleinfelter. Uh, but even there, there have been Kleinfelter patients who have gone on to 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 function as men perfectly well, up to and including even fathering children, yeah. biologically fathering children. So, with great praise, you know. Uh, we, we don't hold that medical science is being used in some really wicked and perverse ways in this whole gender conversation without question. Mm-hmm. The clip you played, I remind the audience, is from a hospital. Mm-hmm. That being said, praise God that there are also medical technological tools available to help those who might benefit from that in expressing the gender their creator gave them. Yeah, all technology can either be used for good or evil. Yeah. and. Just, you just gave two extreme opposites there yeah. with the, the gender transforming surgi- surgical procedures and other things they're doing at uh, some of these children's hospitals versus Horrible. being able to come alongside and help somebody medically in a, in a real way. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, that's about all the time we have for questions. And again, thank you for not only teaching uh, what you did on our hot topic night, but also for coming by the podcast studio for these different uh, episodes, and especially this one where we had a chance to answer a whole bunch of questions. Brother, it is, as always, a joy to shepherd alongside you. Oh, well, this is, uh, this is uh, a fun yet very important area that we're dealing with here and grateful for those that have hung in there and listened to all three episodes with us. So thank you so much for listening to this special McGregor podcast, Identity Crisis Part 3.